go to Joshua chapter 10. That's where we're going to be. We've been looking at this uh, book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Old Testament. And we are in a chapter that is, uh, it's famous. There is a a famous uh, moment in Joshua chapter 10. And whether you've been in church or not in church, it's very likely um, you know the event of Joshua chapter 10. And we'll get to it in, in just a minute. But to catch you up so you know kind of where we are, Joshua is all about the Israelites um, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they finally are going into the promised land. And they're going to go under the leadership of Joshua. He was the apprentice under Moses. And Joshua's leading the nation. He led them across the Jordan River uh, into the promised land. Uh, They go and are now going to conquer this land that God has given them. And we've talked a lot about what does it mean that they're going to go and conquer the land. They're going to kick all these poor people out of the land. And the reality is, is that God has been prophesying this for, for 400 years, over 400 years. And he's given the folks of that land an opportunity to repent, to turn to him, and they haven't done it. And so now what he's doing is he's going to go in and um, this land that he gave to his, his people, uh, they're going in to conquer it, and, and God's going to go before them and, and, and conquer it for them, really. And this is the whole story of Joshua. And Joshua's learning as the people of Israel are learning that God can be trusted and what it means to live by faith and what it means that God's gracious even when they stumble. And so here in chapter 10, we really, we pick up from the story last week. If you remember last week, uh, Joshua and the Israelites, they get hoodwinked by a group of people called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites, they're, they're a part of this group that's supposed to be conquered. But yet they show up and uh, they put on this theater and, uh, and um, deceive Joshua and deceive the Israelites. And they end up making, Joshua ends up making a covenant with them. And the covenant is binding. It, it's, it, it can't be broken once it's made, even though it was made in bad faith. Joshua's going to uh, hold to the covenant. He's not going to kill them. He's going to let them be servants. And so the Gibeonites, they go back to Gibeon. And um, the, the, the other folks in Canaan, the, the people that are there to be conquered, they get sideways with what Gibeon has done, and they decide they're going to unite, and they're going to go and destroy this group, the Gibeonites. And that's what this story is about. And so the Gibeonites, they learn of this, and they reach out to Joshua and say, okay, we're, we're in this covenant together, come and, and help us. And so Joshua is going to take all his warriors, they're going to go to Gibeah, and they're going to fight against all the kings that have united against his people. And in this, God's going to, kind of in this one swoop, uh, Israel will end up conquering all of the southern part of Canaan. That, that's sort of the big story. Now, let me uh, walk with you through uh, the details of this passage because it's, it's, it's quite interesting and I don't want you to miss it. So I'm going to start J- Joshua chapter 10 beginning in verse 1 and here's how the text goes. As soon as Adani Zedek, uh, in the name you hear Adonai, don't you? And Zedek, 
which means righteousness, the Lord of righteousness. That's what he calls himself. As soon as Adani Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, Ai, and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. He feared greatly, or or they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. Stop right there. But first of all, you have this king of Jerusalem. We haven't had a king of Jerusalem since Melchizedek in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 14. And in that name, you have uh, Melech, which means king, and Zedek, Melech Zedek, uh, the king of righteousness. That's who Melchizedek was. Here you have um, Adani Zedek, the Lord of righteousness. But you find out it's really a name he's given probably to himself. You know, I'm the the Lord of righteousness. I'm the one who decides what right is. This is really the sense. And and he's, uh, we're going to be introduced in in the next sentence. There's going to be five kings. He's going to call these five kings together, four other kings, and he'll make the fifth. And um, they come together because they're worried about what this um, trend is. They're worried about these Israelites. They've come in, they've defeated Jericho, they've defeated Ai. Not only that, they end up making covenants with, with, with Gibeon, and Gibeon is the place that they're all the warriors. And so he decides, hey, listen, we've got to do something about this. This is what's going to happen. But notice there, right, right in uh, the beginning uh, of verse 1, it says, uh, Adani said it, king of Jerusalem, he heard. He heard. He'd heard about what Joshua and the people of Israel had done. Truth is, that, that's how it always starts out. The people of Jericho heard, and the people of Ai had heard. And in fact, chapter 9 begins the same way. The people of Gibeon heard. But where the story diverges is so Gibeon in chapter 9, they decide, hey, we, we, we need to join those people. I mean, if those people are under the protection of, of, this, of this God of theirs, then we're, we're done for. And so they decide, hey, we, we need to figure out a way to join them. Well, that's not the case with the king of Jerusalem. He decides we need to figure out a way to Destroy them. Interestingly enough, there's no atheists in Canaan. They all believe. It's just some will want to join, some will fight against. And then notice at the beginning of verse 2, it says, He greatly feared, or they greatly feared, all the, all the kings. Their life was being disrupted. The, the, this this uh, land of milk and honey. Uh, there was... A great storm that was brewing on the horizon called the Israelites. It reminds us in Acts chapter 17, we've been going through Acts and our men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings. And in Acts chapter 17, which is where we were last week, there were these Jews in Thessalonica as they're listening to Paul preach the gospel. And it says the Jews, they were jealous. 
which is another way of being afraid. And it says taking some men, uh, wicked men of rabble, they, they form a mob, set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, who was one of the, the people that was advocating for Paul at the time, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, and this is what they were shouting, listen to this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's what it means. This is the sense you have in verse 2 where they feared. I mean, the Israelites have come in. They're turning the world upside down. This is what God's people do. This is what God's people are supposed to do. That the world around them in their wake is turned upside down. Listen, this fear is very real. I remember um, when um, I used to take kids in the summer to Young Life Camp. And you would go to camp and, and there was a, it's the greatest week of their life. This is the greatest week of your life where you get your money back. And uh, never talk to a Young Life leader that's had to give anybody's money back. And so it's, it's uh, this great week and it's a lot of fun, it's crazy, and there's, you, and there's a speaker every week. And the speaker, he'll stand up and he'll begin at the beginning of the week. And he talks about who God is. And he'll talk about who Jesus is and God is creator and, and sort of the majesty and the glory of God. And then he'll move and, and begin to talk about who, who we are as, as, as humanity. What it means that we are people who are flesh and blood and draw breath and we're created and, and live on this planet and our days are numbered. And then usually somewhere during the week, it's usually like a Thursday morning. The, the, the talks, the clubs, you know, the, the fun's been at night, but now it's, it's the morning and you go and you have this morning deal and, and the speaker will stand up and it's usually a pretty somber thing and he says, listen, I, I've got some really bad news for you. We've been talking about who God is and we've been talking about who we are. And, and, and what I haven't told you yet, but I'm here to tell you this morning, is that there is a problem. That there is this problem called sin. And this sin separates you from God and, and, and me from God. And the truth is, there's nothing we can do about this sin. We, we can't scrub our lives hard enough to, to get it out. And, 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 the, and the speaker will stand and he will tell them the story that the wages of sin our death. And then he'll usually leave it right there. And for the next 36 hours, you have these high school friends whose attention has been captured. And now they have to wrestle with 30, for 36 hours with this reality that, man, there's a God and I want to know him, but because of who I am and because of my sin, there's no way that I can get to God. And what's so fascinating is that 36 hours, it's always, if you're going to have a problem at camp, you're going to have it in that 36 hours. If something's going to be vandalized, if a kid's going to do, you know, something, if there's going to be a fight, if there's going to be the time that he cusses his young life leader out, and his high school kids, young life kids, they do that, they're good at it, um, they're they're cussers. They, they, they do it. 
And it's because they're afraid. It's because the fear of who God is and the problem that they have has set in and they've come face to face with it. And then Friday night, the speaker gets to get up and say, yeah, but it's not the end of the story. And the wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And let me tell you how God has provided eternal life. How he's made that possible for you in his son Jesus. And the kids at that point, the high school friends at that point will have a chance to, you know, they'll hear and process this fear. And they'll either come away and think, man, I'm joining that deal. Or I'm going to continue to fight against it. And that's what's going on here. Look at verse 3. So Adani Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Homan, the king of Hebron, and Param, the king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Deborah, the king of Eglon, saying, come up to help me and uh, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. For it's made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites the king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, king of Jarmuth, king of Lachish, king of Eglon, gathered their forces, went up with all their armies, encamped against Gideon, and made war against it. They all come together against Gibeon. I've got a map. Tom, do we got a map? I'll show you just real quick. Because you read that and you think, I have no idea where those places are. Well, let me just show you real quick, all right? So if you go, start over here to the right, that's where the Israelites were camping at the beginning of Joshua 1. They come across the Jordan River, which is just there above the Dead Sea. And they come into Jericho, will be the first spot. There's um, a place, Gilgal, that's just right outside of Jericho. That's become home base for them. They go up north a little bit and to the east, and they conquer Ai. They go down south a little west to Gibeon, and they've made a covenant with those people. And now Israel's over here in Gilgal. The Gibeonites are there, and the king of Jerusalem, who's right there. See, he's the closest one to Gibeon. He's feeling the pressure more than anybody else. And he calls these other kings from Hebron and Elgin and, and Lachish and Jarmuth. And he says, bring your fighting men. Come up to Jerusalem, and then we'll make our war. We'll make our stand. We'll go against Gibeon. That is what is taking place. Now, you need to know, it says there... You know, the Gibeonites, uh, in verse 2, they're, uh, they're, they're all warriors. These are no wilting flowers, by the way. So, what Gibeon does is, verse 6, it says this, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Don't relax your hand from your servants. Remember, we're your servants now. Come up to us quickly, save us, help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Remember Gibeon, they were the enemies. Enemies of Joshua and Israel, ultimately God. And then they have this deception and they end up getting themselves in a covenant with, with, uh, with the Israelites. And Joshua says, I'm going to honor the covenant. Because when you make a covenant, you can't break the covenant. And so the Gibeonites, they, they cry out and say, hey Joshua, you remember that little covenant that we entered into? Remember how we made peace with each other and we're, and we're friends now? 
Well, we have a problem and we need, we need your help. We need you to come be covenant partners with us. We, we need you to fulfill your part of the covenant. So sure enough, Joshua, not because he thought it was a great idea, but because he was in covenant with them. He's going to take his armies and he's going to go fight on behalf of Gibeon. Now, just a quick note. There's gospel in this verse, and I don't want you to miss. You and I, we're, we're Gibeon, all right? We came into this deal, into this world, drawing our first breath, enemies of God. But God's not made war against us. He's made peace with us through the blood covenant of his son, Jesus Christ. He turned us from enemies into friends, and therefore whoever attacks us attacks who? Romans 8.31, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? And the chapter finishes in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Anytime I feel surrounded, attacked, anytime I feel the world's caving in, we, we, we cry out, you know, Jesus, don't, don't relax your, your hand. Help. Save me. That's what we can say. Well, verse 7, so Joshua goes up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. So, so Joshua says, okay, sure, sure enough, we're in covenant, marches to the defense of Gideon. And then we think, if you, if you were to stop there and you were to contemplate for a minute, okay, so what's the next verse going to tell us? We think, you know, it's going to say, and Joshua did great things. He, he did mighty acts when he got there. But look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, presumably this is just before they've set out or, or um, maybe on, on the road, do not fear them. For I've given them into your hands. Not a, not a man of them shall stand before you. God steps in and he speaks to Joshua. It's, it's reassurance. But notice, it's not new information. This isn't a new word that God's giving him. It's, it's actually an old word that, that, that he spoke to him back in Joshua chapter 1. Not a man of them is going to stand before you. In the hard moments, in the, the pressing moments, the ones that cause great sadness, the moments we feel like we might be freaking out. So we don't need a new word from God. We need the word he's given. God's word applied in our life in this moment, all over again. And so the question begs, I mean, it begs for all of us, do, do we know God's Word? Do, do we know it beyond what someone has reposted in a little, you know, Pinterest picture? And I looked all that up to know that's how it's done. You know, and there's a little verse there, and we've seen it. And then, I mean, so do you, is it like borrowed? I mean, so you're borrowing someone else's knitting? You know, I mean, is that how you know God's Word? Or do you know it firsthand? So the, the chapter. This chapter is not about what Joshua does. 
It's not even about what the five kings are doing. I mean, it's not. The chapter is about what the Lord is going to do on this day. And he begins by telling him the promise all over again. I've given these people into your hands. Before Joshua makes a single move, God comes and reassures him. Now, just listen. I'm just going to read through these quick. You, just so you know, just so you can hear, this chapter is about what God's doing. Verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic. Verse 11, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven. That's a bad day for everybody else, by the way. Verse 12, the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. The, uh, the, verse 14, there's never been a day like it before this or since. When the Lord heeded the verse of the man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 19, for the Lord your God's given them into your hand. Verse 25, thus the Lord will do to all your enemies. Verse 30, the Lord gave it also and the king into the hand of Israel. Verse 32, and the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. Verse 42, Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. This chapter is about what God is doing. Well, verse 9, look at this. this is, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, um, having marched up all night from Gilgal. So the word suddenly, he didn't procrastinate, it doesn't waste a second. Um, uh, he, he immediately goes. And the word up, so they go up. This is important. I mean, it's an elevation change. They're actually going to end up, Joshua's going to march them 15 miles uphill. The mighty men of valor in the dark all night from Gilgal. Verse 10, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. So just for a minute, look at this. Joshua is reminded of the promise of God in verse 8. Without delay, he starts marching uphill all night from Gilgal. And you expect the story to tell us what Joshua does when he gets there, but it's not what the story's about. Joshua's marching uphill in the dark by faith. His faith is being lived out in obedience, which means they're... They're tired and they're winded and their legs are burning and they're, they're all in on this deal. But when they get there, it's not about what they did. It's about what God is doing. Now, just a quick side note on this. Obedience. Obedience is less about something that we accomplish Obedience to God is often a, the, the journey to where God is at work. And so some of you in here this morning might be recovering legalists. Bible churches are usually full of them. You spent years on the treadmill of performance trying to please God. You're addicted to lists and to-dos and boxes to check and you spent much of your life feeling like all that you really did was disappoint God. And then all of a sudden, you learned about grace and you were free. You realized, as Tim Keller says, you're more sinful than you knew, but you're more loved than you could possibly imagine. 
So your chains came off. You embraced the freedom and liberty of life in the Spirit. And so when you hear the word obedience, you get worried. Right? Let me say you don't need to worry. It's just obedience. Faith that is demonstrated in your daily life. Like, like fighting the good fight. Fighting for holiness. Battling against sin. You're not doing that to earn favor with God. Favor with the God that loves you more than you can imagine. You already have favor. It's what obedience does. It carries you. To the very center of God's divine work. And that work is for your good. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then 10? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then Paul says, For where's workmanship? Poema, we're the we're the the handiwork of God created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them good works and we didn't create them we walk in them they've already been prepared we walk in them that's obedience so verse 11 and as they fled Before Israel, this is the five kings and all their warriors, they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, and the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them. As far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. you, You got this picture in your mind? Joshua, not one of them is going to stand before you. Joshua gets there. They've climbed all night. They're winded. It's here. Okay, what do we do now? And they find that their panic is struck. So then the fighting starts, and all of a sudden, somebody sees a giant stone fall from heaven, knocks out one of the warriors on the other side, and the guy looks up, looks around, and says, did you throw that? I didn't throw that. Did you you throw? Are we throwing stones? No, we're not. We didn't bring any stones. They realize God's God's fighting for them. He's throwing stones out of heaven with such a surgical precision that it says God killed more than the Israelites killed. I mean, just let your imagination go wild. And then what you can do is you can turn over later this afternoon to Revelation chapter 16. You go, man, has God ever thrown stones out of heaven before and killed people? Well, it's a picture of what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 16. When the judgment comes. One of the judgments is the people are uniting against God to fight against him. Hailstones will fall out of heaven and strike them. And yet, instead of turning and repenting and going, I mean, listen, let me just say this. If somehow you're in the tribulation and you're living through Revelation 16, okay, let me just help you here. 
if you see stones being hurled out of heaven and they're smashing the people around you, here's what you say. I give up. It's over. I, I, I repent. I, I give up. I've, I've been wrong. Okay? If, that, if you're here, if you're not a believer and you find yourself in that moment, remember what I'm telling you right now. Fall to your knees and worship. But that's not what the people will do in Revelation 16. They will hurl curses at God while he's hurling stones. We'll deal with that another day. Who's fighting? Is it Joshua or the Lord? The answer is yes. Joshua's fighting and the Lord's fighting. And the Lord's fighting through Joshua. And it's a great lesson for us. Faith acts, uh, acts upon the promises of God. Here's how it works. New Testament, we understand this from the New Testament. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And so, so if faith comes by hearing, then we need to understand, we need to hear God's word, and that triggers, that, that initiates faith. And, and, and so without a word from God, by the way, well, without a word from God, you, all, all you're doing, you, you have wishful thinking, um, or you know, some people do fortune telling, which is an abomination to God. It's not that, you know, hey, I'm creating some desire in my heart. I want my life to be easier. I want to get rid of the people that annoy me. No. We exercise faith in what we have heard from God, hearing God's word. That's what initiates faith. And then praying God's word that triggers faith. If you pray God's word, say, God, you, what you said is true. You said it, and it's true, and I believe it. And by faith, I'm going to believe what you said is true. And then I'm going to demonstrate that faith. I'm going to, I'm going to walk as though it's true. I'm going to head in the direction of your truth. And I would just say, listen, the further you weigh, the way you are from the written word of God in your life, the further you are from God's word in your life, the less confident you can be that you have heard from God. And everything else is just wishful thinking. And faith in your own wishful thinking is disastrous. In order to pray in faith and walk in faith, you have to know God's word. There's no other way to say it. I, I know it. It sounds like, well, of course you're saying that. You're, you're the preacher. But I'm telling you, you've got to know God's word. All right, I've got to move on. I've got these things, but I'll... I'll put them in a blog someday and you can read them. Look at verse 12. 
At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of all Israel, Son, stand, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the middle of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. All right. This is one of those passages that you can go off these days to university and, you know, have been a youth group kid and some professor eat you alive and make you feel silly because of what he does with this passage. So, so what happened here? Well, let me tell you the five approaches, and then let me tell you kind of the so what about it. So, so the five main approaches, five ways that people talk about what actually happened. So Joshua, just get to mind, he prays, presumably he's praying to God, and he's telling the sun and the moon, I need you to stand still. The battle's not done yet. And whether it's we need more daylight or more darkness, depending on how you read it, I just, need, I just need everything to halt while we finish this battle. And the celestial bodies cease their movement or their or doing whatever it is they're doing. They stop. And the day tarries. And the five main approaches are this. One, the earth stopped rotating. Secondly, the sun's light lingered. Or the sun's light was blocked, depending if he was trying to extend the day or the night. You could read it either way. Um, special sign was involved, meaning uh, what Josh was actually doing is, is commanding authority over the sun god and the moon god. Or some people take it as it's figurative and it relates to this book of Jashar, which presumably Jashar was a book of hymns or, or, or poems uh, that, that everybody would have known back then. Alternate explanations. Uh, there was a solar eclipse um, during about that time or that Mars was closer to Earth than it ever had been. Um, those are other ones. And here's the reality. Here's ultimately what the author is saying. God did, well, whatever it is that God did, and I certainly believe that he arrested time and space on behalf of Joshua. But whatever it is that he did, it was divine. It was miraculous. And so, so what? And let me just say it this way. If God can't do this miracle, he can't do any miracles. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And if you believe in the beginning, God created. If you believe that, everything else is possible. If God created all this out of nothing by words, of his mouth, 
then he's certainly powerful enough and strong enough and sovereign enough to do anything. Clint Wright came up with this great illustration for, for this. Clint Wright's the campus pastor at the White House campus. It says, Charlotte's Web, you know the story. Charlotte's a spider is written in the, in the web. Um, save pig, or some pig. In order, save pig. In order to keep Wilbur, the pig, from being turned into bacon. And so it's a miracle. You know, no one's ever seen it. And so Miss Arable goes to talk to the doctor about this. She asks, do you understand how a spider could write these words? And the doctor replies, no. But for that matter, I don't understand how a spider learned to spin a web in the first place. When the words appeared, everyone said that they were a miracle, but nobody pointed out that the web itself is a miracle. See, if you scoff at something like the sun standing still in the sky, have you ever crossed your mind the existence of the sun itself is a miracle? We're surrounded by things every day that we can't explain, and they're meant to show us how big. God is. Like people looking at God through binoculars backwards. Everything looks small and distant. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. And God shows up in these moments like this to remind you, see how big I am. I can win any battle that there is. See, as Lewis says, the mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind and process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion. Mere religion is when we turn and we think our God isn't strong enough to fight for us. He's not powerful enough to do this thing. He's not big enough. Mere religion is a donizetic. You know, I'm my own righteousness. I'll fight for myself. How big is your God? Well, verse 14, this is the point. There's never been a day like it before or since. There's never been a day like it before or since. Notice for two reasons. When the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. This is one of those places that the text is pointing straight to Jesus Romans 8, 34, it says Jesus is, the right, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. 1 John 2, 1, he's the advocate with the Father. Hebrews 7, 25, he, Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Even right now, what the Bible tells us is Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you right now. You pray and you wonder, God, do you listen? Do you hear me? And we cry out and we beg to God and we go to church and we read our Bible and we have a list of all the sins we don't commit and our hope is, is, is that God would hear us. And I'm saying, listen, you don't have to worry about God hearing you. Of course he hears you because he hears his son. And Jesus is talking to you on the Father's behalf. So verse 15, Joshua returned all the, and all Israel with him. They didn't lose a single person to the camp at Gilgal. I got three minutes. What do you take away from this this morning? One, let me encourage you to do this this morning. 
It's going to sound hokey. You're going to think, well, it's just what the preacher does. He just applies things at the end of the sermon. If you've been here, you know I don't do that. But here's what I encourage you this morning. Identify an impossible situation you're facing right now. I have to believe there are some ones in here this morning. And you're staring down what feels like an impossible situation. And remember what Jesus says in Luke 131, nothing will be impossible with God. For some of you, maybe it's broken relationships. Maybe it's a marriage or a spouse or a child or a parent. Relationships can feel impossible. You want God to do what feels impossible in that relationship. Some of you are parents and you're praying for kids that are not praying for you because their hearts are hard and cold and they're running away from God. And it feels impossible. Maybe it's financial provision. Maybe it's career aspiration. Maybe it's spiritual awakening in your heart or your marriage or your church. Some of you need physical or emotional healing. You, you want to pray that God will show up in that situation. What's the impossible thing you're facing? And I want you to write it down. I do. I want you to write it down. Type it into your phone. Write it down. Say, God, this is it. And I want you to be, secondly, as specific as possible. Jesus goes to a blind man in Mark 10 and says, what do you want me to do for you? And, of course, Jesus is standing there looking at a blind man. It seems that the answer is obvious. But nonetheless, Jesus has him specifically say, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. What's the impossible thing you're thinking? Find words to write it down. Tell God specifically what you're praying about and what you're praying for. Thirdly, express your confidence to God that he's able to move on your behalf. 1 John 5, and this is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. God, I pray this is your will. If it's not your will, I pray you'll show me your will. Because this is impossible. But I believe you're the God who does impossible things. Fourthly, tell God that you trust him. In his goodness, you trust in his timing. Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and Befriend faithfulness. What does it mean? I mean, I'm not supposed to escape the situation. 
I'm not just sitting on the sidelines. I, I keep marching. I keep fighting. I keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Every opportunity I have. Then he goes on, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. And while you're waiting, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act. God, I trust you. I trust your goodness. I trust your timing. Tell him that. Fifth, go ahead and thank God for his answer. So he said, well, he hasn't answered yet. Well, thank him anyway. That's faith. First Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of Christ, Jesus, for you. Does it mean that it's God's will to change my circumstances? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's the will of God for you in your circumstance, whatever you're facing, to believe that God is seeking your highest good. Do you trust him with that? What's the impossible thing you're facing? Write it down. Pray it to God and tell him you trust him and his, his goodness and his timing. Seek to do his will and thank God for his answer. I think a lot of people say, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, just a great way to start right there. It's a great way to start. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thanks for the morning. Thanks for Joshua 10. It's a whole chapter of what you show up and do for the Israelites. And Father, it's not because they deserve it. They, they have stumbled several times up to this point. But Father, you do that because you love them. You do that because of your great name. You, you do that because in your sovereignty and power, you direct that at our highest good. And so Father, we want to tr trust you with that this morning. That's how we want to pray. That's how we want to live. That's, no, that's how we want to walk this morning is by faith in you. So I pray, this is the only way that I can, the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.